It's my privilege this morning to introduce to you uh, Peter Story, our guest from South Africa. I really was at a loss. I didn't know whether to introduce him as Bishop Story, uh, Dr. Story, who's worked with uh, seminary students at Duke in recent years, Reverend Story. Uh, so I decided what I would say is simply is I would introduce to you Peter Story, a man of God, because I think he lives out what we have understood, at least through the centuries as Methodists, what men and women of God are to be. They are to be people who, first of all, care about the souls and hearts of people, and second of all, care about their bodies and their well-being as well. Jesus, I believe, put it this way in the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And you'll recall we said four weeks ago that includes loving God even at the very risk of your life. And then Jesus added a second great commandment, and love your neighbor as yourself. In his work in South Africa and his presence among uh, students and churches in North America as well, Peter Story has lived out those two great commandments, and it's my privilege to introduce him to you. Thank you, David, very much for that kind welcome, and good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you today and to share in worship here and especially to gather at the Lord's table with you and to receive the gifts of God's grace. Most of you, well, let me look at you more carefully. That wouldn't be quite true. A lot of you weren't around in 1960. I was. It was the year when the United Nations sent a photographic exhibition around most of the countries of the world. There was no internet, there was no electronic communication then. So millions of people in dozens of different countries were able to visit that exhibition and to see a deeply moving collection of photographs. The pictures were just about other people people different from us and yet people expressing the same hopes and loves and fears in their faces. It was called the family of man. I was 22 years old and it changed me. The United Nations had it right. In 1967 a young preacher said to his Atlanta congregation it all boils down to this that all life is interrelated. We're all caught up in an inescapable web of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Now Martin Luther King Jr. never coined the word globalization and he never saw the internet. But his world was already one world. He had it right. Long before all of these, of course, on a Mediterranean island, somebody wrote... After this I looked and saw a vast throng which no one could count from every nation of all tribes, peoples and languages standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And he went on that they were robed in white and that they had palms in their hands and that they were shouting together and that they had a common heritage of shared suffering 
And they were singing a common chorus of the victory of God and their common destiny was to hunger and thirst no longer and to drink instead from the waters of life and to have God himself wipe away all tears from their eyes. I wonder, did he have it right? There is a great human truth about the way that we share this planet. Those of you who live here in North America, those of us who live in Africa, as I do, those who live in Asia and Europe. It's a truth that seems to both call us and elude us. I wonder if you knew that the word economy comes from the word, the Greek word oikos. And oikos means household. Oikonomia means the collective affairs of a household or a community of neighbors. It's a very intimate concept. When we talk economics in today's world, therefore, we should be talking about people who know that they related to each other, who look out for each other, who share with each other so that none have too little, none have too much, and all have enough. That's God's vision of economia. Now, you know and I know that that isn't how the world works. The economia has been hijacked by a blind force that we call the market. And the beautiful shared balance of the household has been skewed by obscene inequities. The community of neighbors is now much more like an, an arena of competing greeds. You know that here in the United States, for instance, a worker getting the minimum wage takes a year, a year of work, in order to earn what the average CEO earns between breakfast and lunch on one day. Somebody's got it wrong. Right now, the three richest people in the world have more money than the combined wealth of the 48 poorest nations in the world. And while in those countries 5,000 people die each day from preventable and treatable disease, somebody's got it wrong. And while that's happening in Europe and North America, we spend $37 billion on, yes, wait for it, pet food and cosmetics. And that amount, I'm told, could provide basic education, clean water, sanitation, basic health, and nutrition for everyone in the whole world who is deprived of these things. And it would still leave $9 billion left over so that you could still smell nice and feed your cats and dogs. It's no longer an economia no longer a household, no longer a community of neighbors. Instead, there's a great yawning gulf that some have called the new global apartheid in a parable about a rich man and a beggar at his gate. Jesus says bluntly, there is a great chasm between. Now, we, we know all this. We don't like hearing about it really because 
You see, we, we are the rich guys and we're, we feel a bit uncomfortable when we're reminded of that. But I think probably another reason why we don't like hearing about these things is because we're not quite sure what to do about them. And that's very frustrating. Sure, we, we need to pray that those with access to the powerful and the decision makers of this world will succeed in moving them. And that can make a difference. Bill Gates got moved a few years ago and see what a difference that has made to the poor in some parts of the world. Maybe other people like him, maybe even nations like this one will get moved so that economic care for the, the world's poor will, will move from less than 1% of the federal budget to maybe 2%. But what does God require of us? Well, something very simple really. God says, all I ask of you is that you live like I designed you to live. Like an oikos. Like one household. Like a family. The family I meant you to be. And you can only do that when you begin to see differently. And then you may discover that all economics everywhere is really home economics. It's family economics. All God asks is that we see with new eyes. Like the blind man outside of Bethsaida. And then we act on what we see. People brought him to Jesus and begged him to touch him. And Jesus took him out of the village and spat on his eyes and laid his hands on them and asked him if he could see anything. And he said, yes, I can see. I can see people. They look like trees walking about. And Jesus touched his eyes a second time. And now he was cured. And now he saw everything clearly. Now, I think I understand that strange event. You see, I come from a land, I'm a South African. I'm a white South African. I come from a land where people like me loved to talk about how Jesus touched their lives. They had all the religious language right. But 300 years of privilege and arrogance and ignorance blinded those same people so that they were quite used to seeing their fellow human beings, people of color in our case, as just walking trees. Like this man of the Bible. For white South Africans like me, one touch from Jesus was not enough. Not if we were really going to see each other the way Jesus saw people. I wonder if here we need the second touch of Jesus too. Imagine a fine restaurant full of smartly dressed diners sitting down to a sumptuous evening meal and the restaurant is all lit up and those inside gaze vacantly at the windows seeing of course nothing but their own reflection. 
They're quite unaware that gathered in the darkness outside are hungry people, so many of them staring at the feasting guests. Someone's got it wrong. God says, all I ask of you is that you live like I designed you to live, as an oikos, as a household, like the family I meant you to be. And if this is to happen in such a skewed world, then we have to have more than one touch from Jesus. Knowing that God loves you and that Jesus died for you just isn't enough. It doesn't cut it anymore. There are two places on this planet, my friends, where more people have said that they know that truth than in any other place in the world. The one is South Africa, where I come from, and the other is the southern states of this country. And in both of those places, we seem to have got quite a reputation over history for treating other people like walking trees. We share a very painful geography, you and I, so, you know, all this touching from Jesus didn't seem to help very much, did it? Unless we let Jesus touch our eyes. Unless we realize that he has to touch our heart. You know, I often say to people, when, when you ask Jesus to come into your heart, uh, be ready for a surprise. Don't think that you can do that without running into trouble. Because Jesus will say, can I bring my friends? And you will say, no, Lord, I thought this was between you and me. Just you and me. Uh, we want a nice spiritual relationship together, you and I. And Jesus would say, well, what about my friends? And you look at his friends, and they're not the kind of the people that you would, you would really want to know. And you say, well, Lord, can't it just be the two of us? And Jesus says, no, you love me, you love my friends too. It's not enough. In fact, it's downright dangerous to be a church that offers only one touch from the Christ, arranging worship services inside the shiny restaurant. God must touch us again and again until we see differently. How? How then does the second touch of Jesus come? It comes by being open to the rest of your oikos, your household, your family. And if you accept God's invitation to meet the rest of your family out there, outside the restaurant where they live, then that's where Jesus may be able to touch your eyes a second time. If you go not raring to do something for people, but longing to see with a different kind of seeing, to see with your heart, it will happen for you. Listen for some of the ways in which the second touch of Jesus has come. Sometimes it happens when we start reading our Bible honestly and not skipping over the uncomfortable bits. I know a young preacher with a fairly well-off congregation who was a lectionary preacher. He tried to be faithful to the lectionary until he came to the reading for next Sunday, which was the parable of the rich man and Lazarus the beggar at his gate. And the question that haunted him through the week as he tried to prepare his sermon was this. 
How can I preach about the rich man and Lazarus when I don't know who Lazarus is? And so he ended up preaching on the Sunday on why he could not preach on that parable. And instead he invited his people to come with him and go and find Lazarus so that they could understand the parable. And they went to the homeless and they went to the hungry and they saw with new eyes and that congregation has never been the same since. Sometimes Jesus' second touch is given in a moment of beautiful undeserved grace. In the bad days in South Africa when whites lived in relative ease while soldiers were making life hell for the people in the black ghettos, a group of white Christians decided to offer a simple act of solidarity by marching across the no man's land between the comfortable white suburbs and the places where black people were suffering so terribly. They marched from Port Elizabeth, the white city, to New Brighton, the black ghetto. As they approached, they saw masses of black people waiting. And many of these whites, who were making their very first journey into a black residential area of any kind, were afraid. Until they got nearer to the entrance, and they saw a great banner spread across the entrance of New Brighton Township. And the banner said this, Welcome to our lost brothers and sisters. You see, when we get out of the shiny restaurant, sometimes we discover that we're going to rejoin the human race, that we're the ones who've been, as it were, outside. Sometimes the second touch wrenches our gut while it gives us new eyes. It was one of our Duke Divinity School students working with us in South Africa who told us the story of a five-year-old child who had lost his mother and then his father and then an aunt and finally his grandmother, all to HIV AIDS. His grandmother was his last living caregiver and this five-year-old child had cared for all of them, hauling water, scrounging food in their last days. And when he didn't come to the little preschool where our Methodist educare workers taught, our student went looking for him. And she found him digging furiously with broken fingernails at his grandmother's fresh grave. What are you doing, Sipo? she asked. He replied, my granny must get up now. Who is there to look after me? Now you see, if God made us an oikos, we know what the answer to his cry should be. If you're a parent or a grandparent as I am, picture the child who is the apple of your eye. Think of the feelings that rise in your heart when you look at that child. Now if we were an oikos, a family, one neighborhood, is God not asking us why we can't feel the same feelings for Sipo as we feel for our own children and grandchildren? See, when we meet our relatives in the oikos, 
Our prayers and our actions can never be the same. Maybe our prayers will become a little more like Mother Teresa's prayer when she cried, Lord, open, my, my, open up my heart. Open my heart so wide that the whole world can fall in. Now, I, uh, I know I'm talking to a congregation that has some experience of the second touch, that has gone beyond the restaurant. I traveled from Austin yesterday, Bob and Nora Scott, and we stopped at a little place called The Loft. And we walked into a place that just was suffused with the love of God. And I, I heard the story. I heard the story of how in that place people, the poor of the earth, many of them, uh, move out of, of their, their experiences of, of poverty and deprivation and come to that place and find love and acceptance. And they come in bondage sometimes to addictions. And they come and find, find loving liberation. It, it's a very special story and I was very moved and touched by it. And I give thanks to God for those within this congregation who've had the vision to, to hear that, 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 that call. But sometimes, the second touch of Jesus, sometimes you will see with new eyes and what you see will so impassion you that you will lay down your life. It was in 2003 that a young American girl from Raleigh, North Carolina, was deliberately run over twice, forwards, then backwards, by an Israeli bulldozer, crushing her body into the Gaza earth. You see, with five other non-violent defenders, 24-year-old Rachel Corrie had spent several hours in front of a family home in Palestine, pleading with Israeli soldiers, do not demolish this house. People are living here. And as her friends dug her out of the dirt, her last words were, my back is broken. Now, I don't know if Rachel was a Christian. It absolutely doesn't matter. She was worth a million armchair Christians to the God who cares about everybody in this oikos. Somebody had opened her eyes. And Jesus is the opener of all compassionate eyes. She saw a family home. And she just knew that she had to care about that home in Gaza as passionately as if her own parents and siblings were living inside it. That's what oikos means. She got the message of oikos. The inescapable web of mutuality. She got it right. Just before that day, Rachel had sent an email to her dad back here in the United States. It said, Let me know, Dad, if you have any ideas about what I should do with the rest of my life.
Of course, there was another child who knelt and said, Dad, let me know what I should do with the rest of my life. And if I have to drink this cup, I will drink it. For the sake of reminding your world, Father, that we are all an oikos. One household, one family. And so, we Christians, we could do worse than ask a similar question of our God today. Let me know, Father, what you would... If you have any ideas about how I should spend the rest of my life. And God, I think, will reply, all I ask of you is that you live like I designed you, like an oikos, like one household, like the family I meant you to be.